This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Gender Health Justice, a series of Kōrero conversations about gender health inequity in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is a collaboration between Link Roro and Plains FM to amplify marginalised voices and provoke system change. Ko Fiona Dihan Tokuingua. My name is Fiona Dihan, and I decided to start these conversations because I wanted to learn and understand more myself, use my voice to create spaces where these stories and this kōrero could be heard by others and create a more inclusive and understanding Aotearoa New Zealand. Uh, I'm just going to start with the karakia, um, just to open. Um, whakataka te hau ki te uru, whakataka te hau ki te tonga, ki a mā kina kina ki uta, ki a mā taratara ki tai ehi ake ana te atakura, he tio, he huka, he hauhu, tihe maori ora. Kia ora and welcome everyone. Um, yeah, welcome to Gender Health Justice. So what? What next? Um, yeah, I mean, we've had five, a, a, a series of five podcasts, a series of five conversations, um, which were all epic and so different um, in each one. And uh, I guess the idea then of bringing a group of us together to um, oh, not to close it off, but more to go, well, so what? You know, we've had these great conversations. Um, it's to continue the conversations to make sure that they, they, don't, they haven't disappeared, but also to debrief some of the learnings. What, what have those of us that have listened taken away from them? Um, what could we do differently? Um, and get a group of us together to talk about, well, what can we do together to provoke system change? Because rather than in each of our own separate silos or on our own, um, there's a, I know there's a Te Reo Māori Whakatoki, which I cannot remember completely, but there's an Irish one as well, which is Ní Nárth Acar Lakeila. So there's no strength without unity. Um, so yeah, that's, a, a, that's definitely a cross, cross country thing right and um, to have those kind of expressions but yeah that's why we're here um, I want to start by just thanking our collaborators um, so I'm here on behalf of Link Roro which is a leadership lab uh, program and, and that's funded by a range of funders which we're very grateful for but also Plains FM um, if it wasn't for Laura here um, I wouldn't have been able to make this podcast a reality her technical ability um, meant that I could just do the talking or asking the questions, asking the questions, Fiona, less talking. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for Plains FM and for Ara now as well for coming on board with us. Um, you know, Sefa is going to speak briefly in a moment just about um, about why Ara are involved in this and hopefully future um, events as well, which is awesome. Uh, to our podcast guests, you know, we had five, two of whom are here this evening um, who gave their time, their energy and their stories. and. And as well, you know, um, we have an extra guest this evening who wasn't on the podcast, you know, but has joined us as well and has a real passion for this. Um, catering wise, the lovely food you've been eating is provided by Can Do Catering. Um, they're awesome. C support them if you can. They're a social enterprise and they employ those with physical impairments and care needs that might not easily otherwise be able to find purposeful employment. And I, this is my second time eating their food in two days. So, and it's always good. 
it's always good so so do do um if you can um photography this evening uh, erica is taking some pictures um, and anna has taken a couple as well if for some reason you didn't want your picture taken just let one of those lovely uh, ladies know and they may be able to well they will they will not take your picture <laughs> uh, we're also recording this evening for the podcast so this is going to be edited up a little bit and um will will form the last episode of this particular series as well which is awesome um i think that's everything from me right now um i'll leave the health and safety stuff to our our wonderful host um sefa from ara and then also ask you then sefa to introduce yourself and um why ara have agreed to be part of this and how how some of this work and so, some of this core role aligns with you personally and professionally and with Ara. So yeah, Sefa, please take it away. Uh, kia ora, taloka lava everyone. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Sefa, I'm the Business Development Manager here for Ara Institute of Canterbury, now known as Tepukinga. Uh, there are a lot of reasons as to why uh, we wanted to be part of this kōrero in Samoan as Talanoa. Uh, reason why, lots of reasons because A, we have over a thousand staff, two, we service almost 19,000 students every year across five different, um, <clears throat> five different campuses as well as online, so that was the sixth one. But, in doing that, every day we are uh, one of our big five focuses at other is a relentless focus on equity. And we're just trying to make sure the outcomes are as, as equitable as can be for everyone being part of the institution, whether being a student or a um, staff member. So it was extremely like we had to be part of this because we want to, like Fiona, Fiona says, uh, continue the conversation and have that conversation as part of our uh, daily talk and the way we do business. Business as usual should always be focused around continuing and expanding on marginalised voices. Uh, I myself, when I was listening to the podcast and I hear, oh, for myself personally, I'm going to admit, like, I'm not from the era, or I'm not female or trans or anything like that, just a male. Uh, I don't see the struggles that uh, my colleagues, other colleagues, other family members, friends secretly go through. And it's good that we have a platform like this to hear about those experiences. For example, when I think about women, please take this <laughs> as lightly, because I am known as a joker. And I like to keep things really light, but how, um, you know, women empowerment, making, uh, getting more females into leadership positions. I can tell you my entire life, females have been in control. <laughs> I've got female bosses. When I go home, there's a female boss waiting for me at home. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, uh, uh, I didn't live that era, but it's good to know. Again, I'm just leading back to the podcast when listening. So it's, uh, I'm learning a lot, especially about um, the, the secret struggles that I've talked about. So this is fantastic. Even um, to the, uh, episode four, when the straight question was asked, like, why do pronouns matter? Uh, that was personally interesting because other becoming Tepukinga, as we join 16 institutes, 
you might have seen or heard that a style guideline has come out and it's it uh, is kind of well it's just kind of telling us how to speak and how to address and that we're trying to cover uh, all of our students all of our tertiary uh, all of our um, staff to basically uh, be as inclusive as possible and we're trying to do that and there's lots of pushbacks push forwards but um, what I'm trying to get to is that if things like this didn't exist, if podcasts didn't exist where voices get heard, then you wouldn't know why we're trying to do such things and make things as equitable as possible. And so, yeah, we're very, very humbled to be part of this and grateful that we have the opportunity to partner with the uh, Grogu podcast and with Fiona and uh, a great cast that's joined us for today. Uh, in terms of health and safety, uh, toilets are just around the corner, down this hallway, and to your left, right for the um, left, males, females, or whatever you'd like to use, they're just down the hall there. Uh, in the event of an uh, emergency or anything, I'm just going to take anyone to the car park, and I'll be able to leave you from there. But I guess that's all for in terms of health and safety, and I'd like to pass it back to Fiona and the team. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Kia ora. Um, thank you, uh, Sefa. Um, I didn't really introduce myself, but I think everyone here knows me, but you know, it's probably a good thing to do. So um, I'm Fiona, um, called Fiona Tokuingua. Um, you can refer to me as she, her. Um, and, and on the screen, um, you can see a lovely picture of myself. Um, I think Lucas, my little boy, there was about mm, six months maybe when I came in to talk to Laura about doing this podcast. Um, so yeah, he's, he's running around the place now. Um, yeah, and <laughs> does, not sit in, in the, uh, does not sit in the front pack the way he does there, I'll tell you that much. But, um, but why did, you know, why did, where did this come from? So just to give you a little bit of um, context, as I said before, I talked about Link Roro and, and the purpose being to amplify marginalised voices for advocacy and provoke system change. And, and this specifically being about um, provoking system change and those marginalised voices related to um, gender-based inequities in, in healthcare. Um, and what inspired me to initiate this project? Well, I, I, I come back to a quote by Maya Angelou, and it's, when you know better, you do better. And I just remember, I suppose over the last few years, gradually, you know, becoming more aware of inequities that I was seeing in the healthcare sector. Um, and some that I had before that had no knowledge of, no, and no experience of. So therefore, I kind of became a bit more curious. The learner in me went, hmm, what's going on here? What's this about? But I've become more aware as well of my own privilege. So, you know, I'm a cisgender Pakiha Wahine. I've become more aware of, I suppose, the strengths and skills and the opportunities that I have to amplify some of these voices and not to speak for them, but actually to hold a space for those voices to be heard because who am I to speak for anyone else, right? Um, I'm not. <laughs> But my own, I guess, personal experience in the healthcare sector has generally been pretty positive. But I do have two kids and, and, and I did navigate challenges with fertility myself. And both of my kids are naturally born breech. So that makes me a very, um, uh, makes me a unicorn in the maternal health uh, sector. sector. Um, for my second child, they were like, right, you're definitely going to women's because we didn't know the first time. And that never happens in St. George's. People do not birth breach babies naturally well I did and 
they wanted me to have a section. And I was like, oh, but I felt, but I suppose the long and short story of, of it was I recognized during that experience that I was very much able to advocate for myself and that I had a really strong midwife with me who supported me. And I still felt a bit um, uncomfortable when I was being maybe nudged in a direction that I maybe didn't want. Um, and while that is by no way the same as others' experiences, it just gave me maybe a hint of maybe what others do experience when they have to advocate for themselves. Um, and that in the healthcare system, there is often these kind of power imbalances um, where, oh, you know, you couldn't be questioning a doctor now or, you know, that's how I was raised anyway as well, you know. Um, so that was kind of, it was all of those things together that uh, kind of culminating made me think more and more. And then I think after, you know, in the last couple of years as well, started to, to read and listen to voices of adv advocacy who were holding space for others and particularly ones that I knew, like Erin, who's on the first episode and their work with Gender Justice Collective and her work with Gender Justice Collective and, and even a friend, a good friend, Hannah, who very openly has spoken and shared her story on Instagram about um, she writes poetry and has talked about the maternal health system and, and maternal mental health and her struggles and, and how she's navigated the complaints process through a, um, following a traumatic birth experience. So inspired by the work I was seeing Erin doing and, and personal um, friend experiences I was hearing about, I just kind of thought it's not enough to be shocked or saddened or angry. It's actually, what am I going to do about that? So now that I knew better, I had to kind of do better. Um, and just started reading and learning and, and that a bit more. But I guess just the, before we jump in there to our, our speakers, you know, I wanted to read just a tiny bit from um, the submission, a submission that Gender Justice Collective made um, to the Health Select Committee back in 2021. And, and it goes as follows. In ora te wahine, ka ora te whanau, ka ora te hapu, ka ora te iwi, iwi e. When women are in good health, the whanau, hapu and iwi will flourish. Good health and well-being for women, wahine, trans people, intersex and non-binary people are critical to ensuring a thriving society. There are many health issues which are unique to women, wahine, non-binary, trans and intersex people. And yet the health system continues to rely on data from studies done on men as if they apply to women also. Inequity in health outcomes between men and women are also the result of gender norms, which mean women will often prioritise the health of whānau members over their own. We know that these inequities compromise the health and well-being of New Zealand women. And when women are unwell, it has a flow-on effect, impacting their whānau and communities. Children suffer. And I just kind of thought, in just one paragraph there, you know, it's capturing some of what we're speaking to this evening. And that's why it matters. And that's why we need to have these conversations. And plus a whole lot of more reasons that, that, you're, going to, that, that you're going to share as well with us this evening. So one of our, the first, the first speaker I guess we have um, is Erin Jackson. Erin was, uh, um, was the first um, person I interviewed for the podcast. She can't join us this evening, gives her apologies, but I'll leave her speak to that because she has shared a video with me. And I'm just going to play that for you now. Kia ora. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Erin Tokuingwa. Um, and I'm really, really sorry that I can't be uh, with you all uh, in person this evening. Unfortunately, I had made prior commitments to spend the long weekend with my in-laws uh, and whanau. So I am heading away to do that. So apologies, I will be on a plane uh, at the time that you are watching this. Um, 
B asked me to maybe just capture a couple of minutes just around um, a little bit around the journey uh, that we've been on as the Gender Justice Collective and Project Gender, um, both since where we started from and then when we recorded the podcast, which now feels like ancient history, um, and I guess what we sort of see happening at the moment in the sector uh, in regards to health and uh, gender inequities. Um, and so what has changed since we started this work around three years ago? Um, quite a lot, to be to be frank, right? The health system has moved uh, both a lot and not at all, uh, or not enough, is maybe the answer to that. So, so kind of a quick recap is that we basically got started with our work in the lead into to the 2020 uh, general election. Um, we surveyed 3,500 women, wahine, trans, non-binary, intersex people, said, what do you want uh, and need to thrive in Aotearoa? Uh, and basically they came back with, you know, the most amazing depth of insights and knowledge. One of those top 10 issues was healthcare. And so we trotted along to Dr. Aisha Vero's office, uh, now Minister of Health, then Associate, uh, and said we need a national women's health strategy. We campaigned for 18 months and we were able to get it included within the Piota Healthy Futures uh, legislation in June of 2022, last year. And so since that time, we have now, um, and we've just actually in March, just finished kind of agitating, supporting, assisting, yelling, whatever you want to call it, um, around the consultation uh, phase for the Ministry of Health in terms of them going out and consulting on all of the strategies um, that are associated with Payota. Uh, and I think um, all of the strategies that they have to um, take and they're, they're on a deadline for July of this year, I believe. And so the idea is that basically they will do all of those strategies together um, they will take an intersectional approach and, and um, you know, as they as they should uh, and basically try and look at everything across the board uh, and then take that, um, basically they go to strategy and then it drops down and over the next year there'll be a whole nother piece of work around what that kind of falls into more concrete action plans um, and that's all to do with ministry uh, budget uh, timeframes um, and so July is kind of the deadline and then it, it comes through, um, again, it's got to be presented by July 2024 for those more tactical action plans um and so that's good I think we say you know that's great I think it's fair to say that we uh have concerns about making sure that that engagement um is meaningful and consultative and genuinely inclusive of the community um I will share our submission um with fee which is you know on public record everyone's welcome to see that um basically calling for the fact that uh, there are no women's health uh, clinical leads on the advisory panels. As we understand that, we're working with the likes of New Zealand Women in Medicine who are asking much the same questions. Um, and there's a few question marks that we've got around, you know, the meaningful consultation that needs to occur. So we've been pushing on that uh, in that space and asking those questions. Um, and we are now looking at, you know, kind of what comes next and, and where we where we go. And so that's probably now that consultation ended just a couple of weeks ago. So we're just now looking as to as to where we go next. Um, concurrently, obviously, we have, you know, major challenges within Fatuora um, and a whole lot of, you know, systemic issues there as well. So there's, a, there's, there's more work to be done. Um, I know that we 
weren't so naive as to think we'd solve the healthcare issues uh, overnight. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's a marathon, not a sprint, to use the old um, the old cliche. And um, we are also at the moment we've got some really exciting kind of mahi on the on the horizon around um, coming into this year's election, uh, and so I think we're kind of looking to how we can pick up the previous research and support that and uplift that around um, how do we support single parents uh, better in this country? How do we bring in paid uh, parental leave um, uh, and make that less um, uh, make that more flexible and more accessible? So there's a, there's a few exciting things, and obviously that all interrelates with healthcare and um, and challenges within that sector as well. Uh, and basically, I guess to the the kind of the key piece, I think that we um, would say at the moment, uh, Fee said to me, um, you know, what what actions or questions would you you know use or or provocate um, were I to be with you tonight? Is basically how can we all collectively raise our voices in the lead up to this election? Um, my personal theory at the moment is that this is going to be one of the hardest elections we've. Um, We've lived through to date uh, as we see the rise of disinformation, the rise of hatred, the rise of misogyny, transphobia, um, you know, that we've seen in the last couple of weeks and months and years. Um, and I think it's going to be a really hard fought um, and hard won election. And I think as women, wahine, trans, non-binary, intersex uh, people um, and allies across um, across the motu, we have an obligation to really make sure that we um, put our hands up, we advocate and we stand up for the things that we believe in um, because every single voice counts. And I think that's going to be the key piece for us in the next six months is what where are the areas that we can lend influence to and who are the people that we can jump on the waka with and support. So um, I'm gutted to be missing tonight's uh, korero. I wish I could be there. Um, if you're interested in more about what we're doing at the moment, uh, we're at Gender Justice Collective um, on, you know, all the usual kind of social platforms and also Project Gender. Um, and I'm happy for, you know, be to share my contact details with anyone uh, who's keen to collaborate and find ways that we can achieve uh, more impact. I know that tonight will be full of amazing uh, conversations with incredible people having listened to some of the phenomenal podcasts um and i'd just like to talk, talk about the work of fiona uh and the leadership lab uh into and plains fm in terms of being able to make all of this possible so um for the converse, uh, opportunity um and i hope that you just have the most amazing time and i look forward to being catching up with lots of people afterwards kakite mm, so mm, yeah i know even on a video the woman is Full of energy. <laughs> She's just, if, if, if any of you know her, or I've met her in person, like just, ah, you know, just always full of energy and passion for the things that she's involved with but you know some really I, I saw a lot of nodding going on here around me particularly as we spoke about she mentioned the election um and and just the the state of of where where we're at right now um yeah she shared the um the submission with me and like some of the things like the recommendations that they had made around women's health specialists are included in the clinical team developing the national women's health strategy and action plan and you'd think that that would be uh, automatic, but yeah, you know, it's quite, you know, it, to read it, it's quite surprising, um, you know, and, 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 around, and around that um, a really great one, sector groups and frontline women's health organisations are compensated for their knowledge and expertise in the development of the National Women's Health Strategy and Action Plan, that it's not an expectation to engage with people for nothing, you know, you need to pay them for their time and for their expertise. Um, yeah, so uh, that might be something that you'd be, um, you might be interested in hearing, Tanya, as well. But, you know, just, yeah, so their submission is, is available um, on their website as well. And she shared it with me. But, 
you know, it's, it's actually quite fascinating reading. You think, oh my goodness, a submission? That, that, no, it really is really um, just easy to read and interesting. So awesome to hear from Aaron there as well. Um, so jumping on, um, just next person that I'd like to introduce you to is Neve. But, you know, Neve would love you to introduce yourself um, and just, yeah, you know, share... Share, share a little bit about you and, and your experience with the podcast. And I didn't know you were going to have that photograph of me. I'm like, oh my well, God. Well, most people did not provide a headshot, so I got them off LinkedIn. So I figured if it's on LinkedIn, you're prepared to have it shown publicly. Um, kia ora, my name is Neve Clerkin and I am a pelvic health physiotherapist. Um, I've been living in New Zealand for nearly 20 years now and my... Um, background has been working originally with in the hospital system I was the team leader for women's and children's um, health care for about seven years and now I work in private practice in a gynae multidisciplinary team clinic in Forte Health called Oxford Women's Health which we I think might be able to change the name pretty soon but um, it's a work in progress trying to push to just like change little things like that to um, be more inclusive um, so for example pelvic health physios used to be called women's health so now we usually say that we're pelvic health um, just to, to make sure that we're not um, marginalizing people or distracting people that don't want to come and see us so um, my job entails um, at the hospital was trying to get some projects underway for lots of um, lots of pelvic health conditions and I'm really um, happy to see that now eventually in 2022 we have a maternal birth injury that the government now has recognised that women do actually undergo injuries when they um, give birth. Um, so there's, um, it's been a massive, massive um, change to our professions and to access for so many women who would either um, not be able to afford to pay privately to see somebody like me in private and similarly in the hospital where we're just really inundated with um, so many other women's health conditions like pelvic pain and um, that um, we will talk to you about soon but um, the maternal birth injury has been a really big um, positive change I would say think in the last um, year so um, the other thing that we work on is I see an awful lot of young females with pain um, and I also treat a lot of endometriosis patients and so they come and see me with many different um, painful sex issues with their bladder with their bowel um, and the inequity across the system, I suppose, we talked a little bit about is in, you know, public versus private. Um, and I think that sometimes everybody thinks, oh, everybody in private, it's fine. Well, actually, I see so many. And my biggest issue at the moment is that, you know, you can have a patient who pays for their health insurance and um, goes to see the doctor, goes to see the surgeon or the gynecologist. The gynecologist says, you don't need to see me. You need to see a clinical psychologist, the dietitian, the physiotherapist. Um, you need to learn all this amazing stuff about education and um, what these clinicians do. But your, your health insurance doesn't cover that. Your health insurance only covers your surgery. And so there's little things like that, I think, that we really need to be able to push and to change so that patient's care is... Um, centered around what the patient needs no matter what the gender is that you, a person is treated like a human being and that their needs are recognized that clinicians are specialized and if they working together and being collaborative that we should be supporting that 
service. Um, and I know in the public system, there's the really issues around pelvic health. I actually don't see an awful lot of trans patients, but we are starting to get more trans um, um, patients or clients coming through the doors, which is really good. And I, I'm actually really interested in do, doing these conversations about learning, like how, like how can I, how can I help? How can I make change in um, what I suppose I see a certain type of um, um, population, and, and what can we do to make that change and to, to try and encourage that um, inclusiveness for all people? So I think we talked about in our. Um, about like we treat pelvises so whatever everybody's got a pelvis so whatever comes in the door and your pelvis I'll just we just treat so sometimes I think physios um we don't understand what people have gone through because we just we're all that is our expertise is like treating somebody and listening to them and developing a rapport with them and trying uh, and connecting with them so I think when we hear the other side of what people actually go through it's just actually so foreign and unbelievable to us that people can be treated like that so um, I think um, we've I think I'd, I definitely would need to learn a lot of how I can do more and um, yeah so just really interested to talk to you all and learn so thank you for giving me the opportunity oh you don't need to clap <laughs> Yeah. Um, yes. Does anybody have any questions about what a pelvic health physio does? That's what I always want to I know. Do people know that that even exists? Because often I hear people saying, I didn't know that you could have physio for that part of your body. But um, So yeah, that is interesting to me. Or that do people have issues accessing? Um, or I think a lot of the issues is also people talking about genital health and um, just trying to promote it as a normal thing to talk about especially females you know like it's very taboo for females to talk about their genitals whereas males traditionally are encouraged to play with their penises and women are told not to touch that area so it's all these different things generation true generations that um i see when i see patients and it's fascinating to me that yeah just how how um society um drives a lot of these um things that aren't probably the healthiest environments for our community. A lot of shame, a lot of shame associated. I mean, you and, you and I will joke about this, but you know, we were raised in Ireland in the 80s and oh, geez, you know, strong Catholics now, you don't be talking about that stuff. And you know, but we kind of joke about it, but we joke about being raised as an Irish Catholic and you're just surrounded by shame. Everything is shame. No, geez, they should be ashamed of themselves. Don't do that now. You'd be, you'd be ashamed of yourself. Don't do that. Don't touch this. Don't do that. <gasps> what am I allowed to? <laughs> but you know, there is, there is a lot of that shame and that's not just an Irish thing. We joke about it, but you know, there is a lot of shame surrounding so many of these conversations that, um, that put people at such risk, actually, that, that, that even 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 our, our you know our kids are learning in school there now about the correct names for body parts it's so that they can go to the doctor and explain you know with confidence around something that is just doesn't feel right to them and to be able to do that and, and even just the shame or stigma that goes with that as well and i think it's like the certain things that you could say oh you know there's not enough funding for heart disease and I'm sure all areas need help but you know you're not going to feel comfortable about saying oh like I have fecal incontinence and since I've had a bad birth I'm I actually leak feces and nobody's going to feel comfortable 
advocate, I, you know, well, we need like collectives and we need those organizations and we need like healthcare and society to support these avenues, I suppose, because um, we are a different, you know, like as in, when I say we are different, I'm talking about like sexual health, genital health side of healthcare for anybody. It is different because there is an awful lot of like privacy and, and, and shame about it and what's happened to that area. Everyone's got, it's such a sensitive area for everybody um, from when we're children to, you know, learning how to learn how to become continent towards the end of life where they're like, that's often the last thing that happens. Like it's such a hugely sensitive um, um, area that um, it, it does mean that it can be kind of pushed away to the side because people don't feel comfortable talking about it. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of a lot of people, I think, when they think about pelvic health, wouldn't necessarily think about some of the topics you've just talked about. Like I have to say myself a couple of years ago when I started to hear a bit about pelvic health uh, practitioners like yourself, I was like, oh, OK, so they just check you out after you've had a baby. But like I didn't, you know, there's such a more of a range of things I've discovered since then that you do. And, and even but even even in that one slot of someone who checks you out after you have a baby, Half the time it isn't. It's just your midwife does, and oh, you're fine, you know. And unless you had a, you had some sort of experience that maybe validated, oh no, they need a specialist appointment. Most women don't even know or get that, so which is interesting. But we'll we'll come back and maybe talk a bit more about this when we're, um, yeah, you know, once we've kind of introed everyone. But uh, thanks, Neve. That's great. Um, the next thing I wanted to do is, while she couldn't be present here with us, I wanted to share a really powerful poem that Fran, who was on our episode three, shared with us and, and in her experience. So just a little bit about Fran, first of all, who gave me permission to share this on her behalf. So Fran Kiwane from Waikato Nati Maniapoto is a lecturer at Te Hiranga Waka, Victoria University, Wellington. They identify as a cisgender Maori wahine woman, Mana Wahine. Ear them they. Fran's work is located within her identity as a colonized Maori British Wahine exploring Ko self, anti racist praxis, indigenization, and Te Tiriti o Waitangi in action. Fran, Fran brings their experiences as a Maori health promoter, health protection officer, and theatre divisor to their teaching practice and research. So I just had to share this poem because it was just. It was just incredibly powerful when Fran did share it in the podcast. She said, oh, I've kind of wrote a, I asked her this question. And then she was like, so I've been thinking and I've wrote a poem about this. And I was like, okay. And then she read it and I was like, wow. So, mana wahine koao. Gender is a social construct constructed on Western binary principles. Male, capital M, female, little f. Sperm, let me introduce you to the egg. They are a link to whakapapa. Whakapapa is non-binary. Te po, te kore, te omarama, our connection to everything, being part of everything, each elemental human having a role and responsibility to the whole, community. Ko kwe, ia. Ko kwe, papa tuanuku. From what waters do you flow from? Hine aho one. Ko kwe, ko mana wahine ahau. No te awa atua. Na atua wahine. I was just, yeah, I just, <laughs> you can just, you can imagine, you need to listen to the episode to hear Fran read it because 
just a different vibe and a different energy, but I just couldn't let this evening pass without resharing it. Um, because it just, it just, yeah. So just go listen to it if you get the opportunity, please. Next up, um, Cooper. Kiana. Tinakota Katoa. Kua. No. Germany, France, Scotland, Ireland, Denmark, England, Oku Tipuna. Kua Sides, Toku Fano. Kua Cooper, Toku Inga. So, Kiara, I'm Cooper. My Fano, my ancestors, are predominantly from North and East Europe. Um, I was born here in Otatahi and have lived here my whole life except for a couple of years that I was in Hawke's Bay. Um, by career, I have been a youth worker for about 16 years now. Um, I am non-binary transmasculine. My pronouns are they, them, ear. Um, and yeah, that, that, that poem's fantastic and I really loved how much um, I, I really love the line around um, the lines around gender being a social construct that was uh, by white what was the lines? Sorry. Gender is a social construct constructed on western binary principles. Yeah um, because that's it's so true and it's so much about what I come up, come up against um, what we all come up against let's be honest um, so my why of of why I participated um, in, in this um, relates very much to your why of why you created uh, why you fee created this and um, the whakatauki that I believe you can't remember uh, well couldn't remember in the moment um, is he hewaka eke no um, which translates, um, which can be translated to um, a, a canoe we're all in without exception, um, and is very similar to an uh, um, English um, quote that is very, that I hold very strong, which is um, by Emma Lazarus, um, who's a writer um, and activist, um, which is no one is free until we are all free. Or oh, sorry, that's a paraphrase. Until we are all free, we are none of us free. Um, so really that's intersectionality, right? And that I feel we need to, all marginalised communities need to support each other to become free from that marginalisation, free from oppression, to be able to all actually get into the light and into um, this place where we are supported and don't have to kind of fight to be heard and fight to, to, to get what we deserve and be able to live our lives and just be, right? Um, I, um, so yeah, I'm a youth worker. <laughs> um, my last full-time job, I was a trans peer support worker um, and a lot of what I did was supporting young people um, to release shame um, and to um, just talk about what was happening for them. Um, and a lot of that time, 
it was being talking about trans issues a lot of the time, um, but it was that it, it often associated with their feelings around their gender and not knowing how to express it and when they did express it, people not taking it well or people projecting what they wanted from those people, from those young people, um, or that they were too young to understand these things or understand themselves. Um, and so I was, for me, it was all about holding space for them um, so that they could express themselves and be allowed to have that safe space to figure out who they were. Uh, I'd never told them who they were, I never tried to lead them in any particular direction, I just gave them the space to try to figure that out um, without anyone in that room projecting any type of shame on them. Um, and I feel like a lot of that projection comes from a misunderstanding around the English language. And that's one of the things that I'm kind of trying to work around. Um, I recently did some education at uh, a local hospital um, with their medical staff. And so I'm kind of trying to work on um, education around English language and how we use it. Uh, so words like gender and sex are often used interchangeably, but they're not actually interchangeable. Uh, we, everyone is born with sex, but gender is that social construct. Um, and often when trans people are talking about changing their gender, people get all uppity and all upset and go, you can't change your gender. Well, I'm sorry, it's a social construct, we really can. Um, or if we say it's a social construct, ah! you know, you don't have to panic, you know, <laughs> like, it's okay. Um, we're not talking, you know, we're not, we're not trying to defy some kind of scientific thing that you think you know, which most people don't, and also science is a lot more complex than those people <laughs> think. <laughs> you know, there's intersex and there's a whole lot of characteristics within that. But anyway, um, and yeah, they, um, also um, another thing that, another one is the, the concept of what a spectrum is. Everyone, as soon as you say gender is a spectrum, or sexuality is a spectrum, people immediately think of a continuum. And so therefore it must be this end or that end, but actually a spectrum can be a vast range of things and it doesn't have to fit within a line. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I just really love this podcast and that it's holding space to have these difficult conversations and I just want more of society to have those difficult conversations uh, so that we can, I think, admit that maybe we're a bit confused about what, she, what each other's talking about and actually, you know, be like, okay, you, you're saying this, but what do you mean? What's your experience? And yeah, and just really get, get to the depths of that. Um, yeah. Awesome, thank you. Okay, and Tanya, welcome. So please take it away. Oh, thank you. Kiora Tanakoto Katoa. My name is Tanya. My pronouns are she, her. I have also been in New Zealand for almost 20 years, with a couple of years back in the UK during that time. And um, when I moved to New Zealand, it was fresh beginnings, new start. I um, 
my, all my children, I have three children, were all born here and um, I'd done some charity work overseas um, in Mexico and Haiti with the, um, with the business that I used to work on while I was overseas and I thought right now it's um, time for a change and I started working with and then for um, not-for-profit organizations, charities. So I've been working in the charity sector all of this time and worked for a number of different charities, different sizes, different types and um, therefore have a real passion for equity. That's what my driver is. I have to ask, ask myself what, what gets me out of bed each day and it's um, about creating equity so um, every individual has the same opportunities to thrive really is, is what that's, that's my why. Um, so now I am the chief exec of Endometriosis New Zealand, which is based here in Christchurch. I've been in the role for two years. Um, we're a not-for-profit organization that has been around for, I think, about 35 years. So it's been one heck of a journey when it comes to endometriosis and some of the stigma you were talking about um, earlier. Um, I just can't even imagine what that would have been like back in the early days of the organization. So uh, that's something we can really resonate with. Um, our org organization is small, but we have a mighty issue that we're, <laughs> we're dealing with. So um, what we know is that there's um, around minimum of 120,000 girls, women, and those assigned female at birth um, with endometriosis. That's one in 10 women, girls, and those assigned female at birth. And there's many issues with the um, condition, which we can talk to a little bit more later, but we, um, as an organization, we have um, several arms of what, what we're doing. So we um, provide support, um, we provide education and information on endometriosis and we um, collaborate with researchers. So we do, um, we've just um, started to launch our own research fund. Um, we raise awareness. So it's actually, we've just finished our March Awareness Month. So we're recovering from that, but um, we do lots of different activities to improve awareness um, in the country. And I think we've come a long way in that space. And then um, last but not least, we advocate um, for those with the condition. And really um, at the moment, we've been doing some um, important work thanks to Erin um, and um, the Gender Justice Collective, the, um, the early petitioning they did for a women's health strategy. Um, we've been working on our um, submission from our organization over the last three months and we've um, had some great involvement from our board, from our clinical advisory committee. And also we created some tools for um, our community to submit their own stories and the impact that ENDO has had on their lives. Because, um, 
Yeah, um, it's really important um, that um, the patients, those that are suffering, have the opportunity to share their stories. So we created a bit of a template on our website to try and make it easier for mm -hmm. people to um, share their stories. And we did have, um, over the two and a half months that it was on there, we had over a thousand people visit that um, template and the average time was about seven minutes. So we believe that um, people were submitting them. Um, yeah, so advocacy is a, is a big big part of what we're, what we're doing now and what we hope to be doing in the future. Um, I'm working towards some of that systematic change. Mm. Um, endometriosis is a highly individualized condition that's very different from each person and the symptoms can really vary, which l is one of the contributors to the delay in diagnosis. So. Um, most of you may not know this, but um, for somebody to receive a endometriosis diagnosis, on average, it takes um, 8.7 years. So that's eight years of living with what can be really debilitating um, symptoms. Um, won't go through all the symptoms, but it can have a real um, impact um, mentally, physically, emotionally, on somebody's life. Um, the, a recent study also said that um, during that time, that's from onset to diagnosis, that the individual would need to see five different doctors just to be um, heard and validated and listened to um, some of the themes that are coming through. So. Um, we believe, we know that our um, services are incredibly important to those um, that are especially going through that. And we hope um, in the years to come with the improvements with the health system that we can reduce that diagnosis time. Yeah. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing, yeah. Tanya. Just like that, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you for the reminder. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Um, but like just the theme there, you know, that the energy it can take. So we're, we're, talk, we're, here, we're talking about inequity in the healthcare system, you know, generally based around gender. But one of the things that's coming up around that inequity is, is the energy it takes to, the energy it takes to advocate yourself when you're one of those marginalised people in one of those marginalized groups trying to get that help you need you know so the i'm always seeing like the bigger the gap that inequity you know the more energy it takes to advocate for yourself and to get the help that you need and and if you are one person on your own and and you're trying to advocate for yourself and there's you know there's just constantly these barriers you know sometimes it, it must be hard to keep going Absolutely, and I think it doesn't matter what the condition or what the issue is, but if you've found the courage to go and speak to a health professional about whatever it is that you're facing and to not be heard, not um, listened to, must, you know, it must be incredibly difficult mm. to, um, to 
to you know to how do you how do you go forward with that you know that's like what you were talking about earlier you know do you just just get on with it or you know what mm. are the next steps yeah yeah i mean that you know so so if inequity is you know i just remember looking up the definition when we were doing some of the podcasts you know to have a definition but inequity being a, a lack of justice or fairness so if inequity is a lack, inequity being a lack of justice and fairness, and then we're talking about being able to navigate that inequity on our own, what what do we need to do to change that? If individuals, you know, what do we need to change in our systems? You know, that's probably a big question to start with. Like, but, yeah. but what? Yeah, what? What are some ideas around how we can, you know, since we're on that theme now, how we can help individuals find our the energy or help others give them the energy so that they can navigate those inequities what 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 do people need well more research because we know that research in female health from exercise physiology to healthcare to diagnosis is very much um behind where it should be in so many different industries so having actual evidence-based research and more research than to help people to be able to diagnose earlier that will definitely be one thing I see as helping. Would you agree, Tanya? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Cooper? Yeah. Um, as part of our women's um, health submission, there were three areas that we were, foc- um, that w- we were focusing on as part of the endometriosis action plan. Um, but one of them is definitely research. Um, it's, um, I know endometriosis as well as many other um, female related issues would be um, are just under research there's just not a lot of understanding mm. out there mm. yeah I'd agree with that as well um, especially because um, the medical field is um, risk adverse uh, and so if there's not um, enough research to back a decision then um, then they're not going to give that the they're not going to follow that care request um, from someone, um, which ha- is a massive barrier for transgender people mm-hmm. who have seen um, other countries providing particular care um, or medications that aren't accessible um, or are accessible but not through, um, aren't funded in Aotearoa. Um, yeah. Yeah, any thoughts? Why, why is there less research? Well, there's definitely to, for... Um, when you go, so we were part of this research with the University of Canterbury the last um, few years, just helping somebody to do their PhD on um, stress incontinence in um, postpartum, which means after women have had a baby. And when and the exercise physiologist went to look at all the, you know, you've got to do your groundwork and just do your basic re- lit, re- lit reviews and your systemic re- research reviews. When you go to look at something for a for females that's just not there it's like 20 years behind because as anybody if you're going to do your research in your final year at university you go in you try and do something and there it's too hard to do a study on females because then they have hormones and they have menstrual cycles and they have all these different things that make it actually quite a little bit more tricky so it might take longer so then it's more funding and then so it's, it's just historically not been there and there's never been maybe the push to do it until hopefully changing now so all the exercise physiology data and strength and conditioning data is all done on males because 
um, that's how it's been done. So it's very tricky and more difficult. That's very historical as well, but um, it probably costs more money and there's never been that drive. Yeah. What about for track? Can I ask a question? Oh, <laughs> so yeah. can you tell me what would be like the top five healthcare um, issues that you would have in the trans community um, or having either access to or feeling comfortable with or what would be the major issues? Can I come back to that and just add on to the, the, um, the yeah. So the other things I was thinking around, um, uh, what were you just, thank you, oh, ADHD, you're fun. Um, uh, is often it's people who are studying or qualified to be doing that. Um, and historically, uh, you know, traditionally, uh, men were in universities first, mm. so it was it's it's people who are d who are doing the research as their interests, mm. and what are their interests? It's their literally their interests, right? Mm. Um, and then we get women in, um, and also um, within the uh, transgender community, there's a very high uh, correlation with neurodiversity, um, so that's um, autism spectrum condition, ADHD, and that means we also uh, traditionally don't feel well in a university setting um, we're not so we're not going to have as likelihood of being able to do that research so there's there's kind of like a compound effect yeah um, so I'd say that, that, that that's a, an additional reason why um, there's less women's research and then um, less trans research and as I note, note all that um, unless you specifically say cis before something women's, men's, that also is trans. Um, the, the other thing is also that um, the one of the things that's not very well known about um, Nazi history is that uh, they actually had a lot of study around trans people, um, but that was all just complete, like the German people had a lot of history around trans people, but that the Nazi people absolutely destroyed it. So there actually was there was information about us before, um, but there were people that made sure that that didn't exist any longer. Um, so we would be a little bit further ahead, maybe not far, <laughs> but we would be a little bit further ahead if it wasn't um, for that, because we were one of the many top targeted populations. Um, yeah, as for the top five, what was it, top five? Um, like healthcare... Um Issues or um, yeah, um, so a lot of what I, like um, access to uh, surgery and hormones. That's that's always a big one. The the hormones are generally available or generally there, um, although COVID has impacted that. Um, I've thankfully only had to change my horm my um, hormones once, um, but um, yeah, the access to that has changed. Um, the but the the process for how to get access to hormones is different depending on what region you are. So it's called the postcode lottery. Mm. And we just, just while you were saying that there, that was something Erin mentioned as well in her podcast, that even for women accessing 
um, yeah. a birth control. Um, yeah. The process was completely different depending, you know, on your postcode, postcode lottery. So, and not just urban or rural, but even depending on the DHB and the process you'd have to go through to get an IUD was completely different and may cost hundreds of dollars in one place and virtually nothing in another. So, you know, even inequities within, oh, um, within, yeah. within a particular, within a gender as well. Um, beyond that, so that geographical stuff. And just to jump in on the, what you asked, Cooper, there, George shared on their podcast um, about often that the, uh, the, the, the a- access to reproductive um, services. And so h- how often for, for women um, that when we're talking about reproductive rights, we're, ta- we're generally talking about access to birth control, access to, um, to abortion, um, and those kind of options, whereas for the trans community, what George shared was actually it's often about access to fertility services. Mm-hmm. Um, so wanting to have families, not yeah. not wanting to have families. So um, a different perspective on on the so that as well as, uh, feeling supported in those settings. That as well as um, access to being able to um, harvest and store eggs. Yeah. So if you are a trans woman, so if you were born uh, assigned male at birth. Um, you, um, you storage uh, of sperm is funded, at least here in North Otahi Christchurch. However, if you're AFAB, that's not the deal. I understand it's a more complicated procedure, significantly more complicated. Um, <laughs> however, um, so if you're assigned female at birth, then you can't. They, there's no access to um, no do family, like eggs no support. to yeah. freeze your eggs. And does that differ, because going back to your earlier point about the postcode lottery, I know for Endo throughout the country, you know, there's some places that you you can't even um, get a referral to a gynecologist. Um, And in other places, you know, um, you can get through a lot quicker and seen and the care's um, a lot greater. Do you think there's, do you, are you aware of the differences throughout the country for support? I'm going to be honest on that one, I'm not sure. However, I'm going to take an educated guess and say that I would say it would be comparable to general women's issues. And I cannot imagine that egg storage and stuff would generally be funded. So um, I don't feel that that is a, just trans issue yeah um and i guess that's one of those you know we're all in the same boat yeah. um without exception things right yeah. um i know that yeah. the formation of tafata or it is to remove this mm. <laughs> um postcode lottery and i'd like mm. to think that that's what the future looks like mm. but who, yeah who knows um tanya i'm keen to just um you know, because you hadn't been a guest on the podcast, just to just spend a little bit more time hearing a bit more about um, about your work. But I suppose specifically some of the, I know that there's a range of symptoms that women with endometriosis experience. Um, so there's not a, a, a one size fits all. But I, I guess one of the things that we talked about in, in, in all of the podcast episodes was being able to share some lived experiences of each of those people um, or of each of the, the topics we ended up talking about. Yeah. So I guess I'd be interested to hear, obviously, you can't go, oh, this is the lived experience. But yeah. what are some of the, the, the really hard lived experiences you're hearing of women 
um, experiencing endometriosis. And I mean, even the statistic you shared about it taking up to eight years on average to get diagnosed is heartbreaking in itself. But yeah. Yeah. So I'll say typically because <laughs> everything yeah, can be different, but um, typically symptoms start with menstruation. So um, young um, girls and those assigned female at birth will, will um, in their teenage years at high school, which can be a difficult time. I know, <laughs> I know I'm glad I'm not at high school anymore. <laughs> um, and um, what will well, actually um, some st statistics that we know that 27% of young um, girls will um, have to miss school each month because of painful periods. So it's usually pain with with periods, um, heavy heavy um, heavy periods. It can be. Um, pain um, at diff different areas of the um, body, um, IBS, um, problems with urinating, there can be, yeah, mm. yeah. Do you want to add any symptoms? <laughs> um, um, I suppose I probably see people who are at least 16, 17, 18, so not, and, and when I assess them, I do a timeline of when did your period start and how it affected, and you, you think about how did it affect your functioning? Um, you know, did you have to drop out of sport? Did you miss a day of school every month? But by the time I see them, um, usually they're sexually active. Um, and um, so I'm seeing a lot of people with painful sex. Um, with um, And we decipher that with um, having issues with their pelvic floor. So that's the muscles around the pelvic organs. Um, a lot of abdominal distension and a lot of fascial tightness and you get a lot of postural related a lot of musculoskeletal in issues um, which can be really helped by working with um, physiotherapy exercise um, breath work yoga for pelvic pain and endometriosis but um, often a lot of pain because of the organs and all of the issues systemically it does end up affecting the um it not, not necessarily the endometriosis it can just be from being in pain all the time that you get bladder bowel um issues all associated yeah. back pain hip pain and also um a lot it can be associated with a lot of other um um areas yeah, yeah. Yeah, so basically a lot of what we hear is young girls then um, can be um, quite distressed and in a lot of pain and then um, as a result um, not attending school mm. during those times and then that can have a, an effect on their um, their education but also relationships as well confidence, uh, confidence the you know it's it's a real critical time mm. in somebody's life to mm. be going through that mm. um, so um, we also um, hear from a lot of parents as well quite distressed and not knowing how to you know how to support their teenager mm. through these times and um, you know if the doctor's not hearing them and um, yeah it can just be quite traumatic and not just for the young person also for mm. the parents and the whole um, your whole family you know the whole family really um, we do hear a lot of um, 
people having to drop out of university is quite a common one. There's quite some high stats around that, not being able to continue mm. with education. And also um, issues within the workplace as well. That's what um, I was thinking about that earlier when you're talking, you know, as an employer, I would say it would be really important to just create an environment where people can talk and be open but mm. that isn't the case for many um for many people so they they end up um you know losing their jobs or you know not having flexibility to manage the condition mm. in the workplace too so um yeah don't you think that don't you think that um i do think that the since covid people's ability to work from home yes. is has been so empowering for so many yes. of my endometriosis patients because a they're both might have an understanding but sometimes they might be like I'm having a really painful day I just need to have my hot pack and my tens machine on and I can work from home in my track pants and I don't have to walk 50 minutes to or whatever their issues are and they can still be really productive and do get their work done but they're just having a little bit of a a fluctuation in their pain day and um and that's really positive Definitely. that maybe that's more workplaces yeah. could be a little bit more it actually allows them to be productive yeah because, yes. they, because yes. they're actually able to be comfortable rather than sitting uncomfortably in an office chair yeah. and trying to hold in this pain and yeah. trying to mask it yeah. so that other people around them feel comfortable exactly exactly and so we're really talking about here you know for individuals it's being able to have open conversations this is all coming back to what we talked about earlier to not have shame around some of the issues that are just parts of our bodies and parts of um yeah so that we can we can talk about those things as openly so that we can get the circumstances or our needs met so we can work or we can attend education and we can be believed and that's one common thing i'm hearing here as well and i think um we were talking about it and I talk, spoke with George about it actually on our, in our conversation about empathy being um, not just about putting myself in your shoes because actually mm-hmm. I realised that empathy, I can't always put myself in your shoes mm-hmm. because I might never in, have experienced what you might have experienced but actually believing your experience mm-hmm. is a big part of that as well. So it sounds like, you know, this, first of all, we have to overcome the shame about talking about some of these things. And, and then if we can overcome that enough to even ask for help, yeah. then it's about being believed. Yeah. And, and, if, and, and if it's taking eight years to get diagnosed, yeah. you know, on average, um, and, yeah, you know, is, is it being, you know, are people actually being believed? Sometimes it is that just the symptoms are maybe really um, difficult to yeah. pinpoint, but sometimes it is that dealing with the system because of maybe their postcode or yeah. the doctor they go to that, they're not being believed. Yeah. I think like many other, other conditions, it's really important to just find somebody, if it's yourself living with it or just helping somebody. And like you said, you know, with your um, problems after you'd had a child, just having mm. somebody to support you along the way. I think there are 
um, lots of organizations out there um, that do provide support, mm. which I think is great. So if you can connect mm. through that. And although social media definitely has lots of negatives, there are some positives out there that it does provide opportunities mm. to connect where you might not have somebody in a similar situation right in your neighborhood because you're, you know, what you're dealing with isn't that common. But um, if you can connect with somebody, even if it's on the other side of the world, it, you know, that can be quite powerful mm. to just um, have a connection with somebody who's experiencing the same kind of things that um, are your, you know, your struggles each mm. day and just empowering you, you know, to um, get by. And You said that, um, that you get parents calling up yeah. um, as well as people who experience it. Do you ever have partners calling up about how they can... Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, We actually put, um, we we had an event and it was an online event and we thought that that was quite good because it was less intrusive and it was um, by somebody um, based in Australia but it was the chronic pain couple and um, she um, she just talked through um, just different techniques of how you can support somebody mm. that's living with chronic pain. And um, yeah, there's um, some partners out there that, you know, it must be really difficult for them as, as well, but just mm. some simple techniques and just simple things that you can do um, just to um, support somebody is really important. Mm. So yeah, we do get partners mm. more, more and more. Or, um, yeah, I'm curious. Um, well, I'm keen to hear if there's any questions from from you, from our audience that are here this evening. Thank you, everybody. Really interesting. I oh, just a question for you, Nick. Um, how did you decide to get into this work, and what's led you to, to this point? Um, I think I le- I I trained um, in the UK, and when I came out to New Zealand. I just loved being able to work in an environment like with ACC and all the musculoskeletal specialists and I did sports medicine and worked in a um, private practice for um, many years and then after the earthquake (laughs) I just had got to the stage of my career being quite experienced and I felt really disillusioned by the ACC system if I'm to be honest Um, and um, just didn't really see how can I how can I, I progress in my career? How, how am I going to do this? I'm already treating so, such an amount of patients throughout the day and the earthquake, because I guess everybody had a lot of things to reevaluate in their lives after we experienced that Christchurch earthquakes. Um, and I had been back to Ireland for a year and I worked in um, private practice there and I was so blown away by the respect that our profession had in a system and in a small country. And I would say, would a lot less good services than what we have in New Zealand but there was a real respect for health professionals because people were paying for it and they had health in the private industry I mean and a respect for that and I feel I felt like in New Zealand we didn't have that respect for um, or that value associated with my profession anymore and I got really disillusioned and I, I I'd, I'd thought about how um, I had lots of pregnant patients at the time and I thought, oh, gosh, I just want to use my sports medicine movement. I want to do exercise and Pilates and treat pregnant people and help them. And so I looked into all these options and went and did some training and I absolutely just loved 
everything about women's health physio that um, was very new, I suppose, at the time. Um, and I ended up getting the job at the hospital as a team leader there to um, to help with that, with that. And that's how I, I actually learned my a lot of my work clinically from a female f um, physio at the hospital. Um, so yeah, that's 13 years ago now and I still, it's amazing. We're very fresh compared to orthopedics and all of the other areas. So we're still learning and developing and need a lot of research. Um, but it's a really exciting to be um, in, a, in an area that's evolving very quickly and becoming more normal and a lot more physios coming into the area, yeah. Because you know you don't, when you're at university in all over the world, not just New Zealand, in Otago, when you do physio, you don't learn anything about what goes between here and here. You know, you learn as far as the hips. <laughs> And then you go and you learn about the thigh. You don't learn about all Yeah. Um and I had my clitoral model and I've got these clitoral like an an anatomy models and I had somebody came into my office the other day who was a lecturer at the University of Otago and she was just nearly crying. She's like, I'm so happy to see you have this. You know, it's not in the anatomy books since 1978 or something. Or um there was just female sexual anatomy had not even been part of books until like I think 20 years ago or don't quote me on that but um it's just um it's evolving so quickly that it's quite exciting yeah it was probably more recent than that to be honest oh, it? <laughs> it, it was probably more recent than 20 years just a comment actually Niamh on um on our conversation we haven't mentioned it here but you brought up something that um I hadn't thought would come up during our podcast or come up uh, was the inequity on the other side around you were talking about men accessing pelvic health um, services and that that generally you know that you would have sometimes seeing female patients you would be talking to these women and they were talking about their husbands were struggling or their partner was struggling and they didn't know where they could go or where they could get that help and I, it was something that never occurred to me and we do have pelvic health um, physios who treat males. I don't at the moment, but um, in, when at the hospital, and, and I did check in with my um, colleagues there a few weeks ago, who's the practitioner, and I said, are we still not treating men? No, there is no pelvic health physiotherapy service or anything for males. And when I say males, these are maybe who have had go through prostate um, surgeries and the research is there. There is really good research to say that mm. pelvic floor training and um, helps these men um, pre-prostatectomy and post-prostatectomy. So when they have any, any issues, it's really, really um, efficient and helpful. But there is like no service, but nobody talks. I wonder why nobody talks about it. I'm like, where are all the male advocates? Like, why are there, isn't there nobody shouting, looking for, you know, cancer votes or anything? Why is why not there? And it gets brought up every once in a while. But, you know, the 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 physiotherapy for females and I suppose is like well there's not enough to even see all of those so it needs to be a whole extra service and you know it's, it's, it's a um, it, some DHB so um, Auckland definitely do treat males as part of their physiotherapy cohort and they're um, in, in the DHBs up there and um, so Christchurch is a little bit different than that um, so yeah it's there is there is inequities. Um, I think to do with anything to do with the pelvis is a very very um, large amount of inequities for this particular area. Yeah. Mm, very neglected. Yes. <laughs>
Well, well thank you. Uh, yes, yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll get you the mic there. I just want to get an opinion, I guess, about especially endometriosis, women's health, or reproductive issues, um, about the conversation around like reliance on birth control as a treatment, like hormonal birth control. A lot of the time you go to the doctor for endometriosis, um, or particularly me, I went and had a lot of pain, and they said, we can do a surgery to see if you have it, but we'll treat it the same either way. It's just hormonal birth control. Um, so whether that's an issue, because like, I didn't even know that you could go to a physio for that kind of issue. Um, so it's really interesting to hear. So it's probably important to say I'm not a medical professional, but um, the, the first line of treatment would usually be birth control to see if you can keep, manage the symptoms. So that's, that's really common. Um, it's not always, it doesn't always work um, and um, usually works in earlier stages of endo. So um, that's, that's, that's a common thing. And, um, I wouldn't be surprised um, that your doctor would suggest that first off. Um, but as far as your laparoscopic surgery, if they were going in to, um, to investigate endometriosis, um, if, you, if you were to have that, it, it, it basically is within the clinical guidelines. The suggestion would be that they would remove it at the same time, that they wouldn't just do a diagnostic surgery. So I'd be a little bit confused about what's happened there, but maybe we could have a chat about that afterwards. Um, but um, the point probably, which is important for us to talk about, um, surgery isn't really the the only answer and um, definitely um, a multidisciplinary approach um, to managing endo is um, the best way to do that and um, there's different um, ways of doing that so that's about managing your diet and a physio here and um, also um, seeing a psychologist and there's different forms um, different ways you can manage the condition to just manage the pain as well so there's definitely um, you know a wide approach to managing the condition like having your toolbox we talk about you know your tools and trying to as you you know because as you change as uh, through your cycle and through your age you know your body changes anyway and if you're already living with a possible diagnosis or a, a definitive diagnosis then it's you do change and it's not it's it's important to have tools strategies which can be like pain tools how to manage um your good and your bad days um what's your non-negotiables things that you need to do every day to help you live and um which we do for all of us but it's just more adapted to your specific condition when you have something like endometriosis um and so yeah there's loads of different things and i think sometimes when you share them people are like oh yeah and you go oh that's why you do that and you're like that's why i like having my heat pack when i go on a certain day of my period or you know we probably do these things naturally but sometimes it's so important when you have a medical diagnosis that medical people or whoever your therapist is or your organization that you're your c or your gp is just you know it's important to talk to them about that and i suppose as well and to have that recognition that what you're doing is okay or to give you the extra tools that you need yeah okay. and and, sorry, and I think that um, so your explanation there about um, the, the the different kind of um, mental health uh, 
factors, so like the, the good days and the bad days and how you manage them and what the I must be able to achieve and all that um, and the, the pain management stuff. Um, it's really good to kind of explain it in that way because um, also not a medical professional, <laughs> um, but I've worked with so many people who um, when they, and also know personally so many people that when they've had... Um, who, who know they have endometriosis and when the treatment um, option of uh, go to the pain clinic um, so that you can have this treatment or see a psychologist, they immediately go, oh, I'm being told that this is in my head. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand actually the, the, these tools that, it, 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 that you're going to be given um, and there's, there's a purpose to it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's because often as marginalised genders we've been gaslit so much already and so we're kind of quite used to being told this is in our head so we kind of immediately go to oh we're being told that again. It's been back to the being believed a little bit and I remember hearing um, it was another podcast I was listening to and talking it was it was two Irish women actually and one of them was a nurse and they were talking the nurse was talking about you know some of that gender related gaslighting that sometimes happens and um, that it is more often that a, a woman or um, or some you know another marginalised uh, voice could be asked. So would you call yourself a stress stressed person, easily stressed person? And and she just said, if you ever get asked that, the question back is, so what clinical relevance does that have to my diagnosis? Because often it is trying to. A, uh, yeah, and I just thought, oh, wow, I never thought about that. But that actually, that is not an okay question depending on the context of course you know I'm sure that there are times it's okay to ask that question but I just never thought about it as a a common question that she had heard herself being and had been asked herself and and herself being in the profession she was in it's like "Eh, no 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 this is not happening (laughs) no this is not in my head you know so that seemed connected to me to the not being believed bit sometimes and what are we, so what are we, you know, what are we missing there around maybe people not being, what is being missed or what is the gap there? If people are not being believed, if, um, if people are being asked, oh, you know, are you easily stressed? You know, wh- what is it that's missing or wh- what's going, what, yeah, what is that? I, th- I think it's, uh, with, like so many of these, <laughs> these questions, the, the answer is very complex. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that, um, the front line of health um, GPs are, you know, they're overworked and they get 15 minutes mm. with I someone. Was gonna t- mm. I was going to say the time. Like, yeah. pe- people will say, oh, nobody's ever asked me that before. But, you know, well, I'm seeing people, physios, we get to spend 45 to f- 60 minutes with um, our clients. So we have a luxury of being able to do that. And, it's, mm. and that's great that then our clinical colleagues, doctors and... Mm. Um, gynecologists or GPs know that oh, send them to physio, like you know, and and it's great cause, because really they're dealing with so many different things in 15 minutes. Like I do not know how they do it. Well, I find if the GPs don't have the knowledge, which is the case with endo a lot of the time, they will they don't want to go there you know they do want to dismiss it as well so i think yeah so Mm. it's it's difficult because you you know they're under stress as you know the restrictions of time but i think that the 
when it comes to endo, there's definitely a big knowledge gap there mm -hmm. and there needs to be a lot more education for them to understand just some of those mm -hmm. symptoms as well. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't want to. <laughs> definitely wouldn't want to be a GP. Yeah, but, yeah, because we're not here bagging healthcare compressions. Yes, That's not why we're yeah, here. But we are acknowledging yeah. that often it's yeah. time poor, um, overworked themselves, yes. stressed. There's such a range of, um, oh, I suppose, uh, conditions yeah. and um, you know more and more things that they're needing to know about. But is it possible to be? Is actually a GP model? maybe even yeah. relevant anymore i'm just asking big wild questions or like a clinic specifically like yeah. we have a wonderful like sexual health clinic or you know something in the community that's actually for marginalized either communities or um people with these chronic conditions or for maybe specific so it takes almost splits up the yeah. what you go to yeah. an ed you know seeing a, an acute um a&E or emergency department for is very separate than going to with a chronic pain um, seeing all different types of genders but for sexual health related conditions and having it as a multidisciplinary team I mean that would be my goal when we win the lotto and we set up our own <laughs> I was getting like big picture here yeah yeah but back to maybe it's, it is more about that patient centric rather than and and that's more what you're talking about because it's around particular types of patients it's not about putting them all in a box but it's yeah. more around the particular needs of a group of patients rather than around a system that is yeah it's a different model like isn't it mm. yeah because because yeah, gps they they tend to have to do further education on i think guessing here i think it's like three topics or something a year Some, something a number similar to that at least um and they choose which ones they sign up for, so it's their interest, yeah. um, and that's fair enough. I'm not. I'm not saying that as a criticism, um, but if they don't understand the the why and the need of why to learn about a different topic, mm. then they're not going to sign up for that and learn more about it. Um, and in Orthotahi Christchurch, um, the 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 goal with trans healthcare is to not have it just in one place, um, but to have um, as many GPs, as many medical people understand it as possible so that anyone can just go to their local GP and get the care that they need. Um, so there's a, um, a GP peer, trans health peer group um, who meet and keep themselves up to date and stuff, nice. um, which is fantastic. Um, I, I think that's awesome and a great goal, but I think it would be good to also have it a balance with a place that people know that they can definitely go to get the like really good care to that can kind of support support the every every GP to um, have that balance because uh, there are some people who are much more complex than the average trans person who need more intensive support uh, maybe they have more intersectionalities <laughs> um, like uh, than the average person so they need more than that 15 minutes and you actually in our conversation, I remember we talked about, um, you know, having that 15 minutes and how you talked about how trans people have all the other normal diseases, too. And we meant what we meant is things like, you know, 
flu, but like even more so cancer and other things. But often, uh, or endo, uh, but a trans person will go into their appointment and if and will always, you know, if they're only allowed to address two issues in that 15 minutes, it will always be their um, gender-related, their trans-related health issues first because you needed, I remember the quote still, you needed that dealt with before you were born. Mm. That, that, was, that is your deepest, most psychological embedded need. So it's always going to be the thing you lead with. Yeah. You know, so everything else will get pushed to the side and, 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 that, and then we, there's statistics there. I'm no expert, but to show that that's why you have more, more marginalised people trans people dying of cancer dying of those diseases that are potentially more preventable and it's the same for probably maori and pacifica women as well because the more marginalized you are the more likely the less likely you're going to speak up about it because so yeah it's just yeah mm. any any other questions from our audience yeah um can everybody um just a question for you cooper what what would you love to see uh, happen for trans people in the health system and and what would you love your role to be in that yeah um i so a couple things um one i was a bit fear adverse so i had a fear reaction when the suggestion when i first saw the suggestion but i would really love to see um, a ministry for rainbow affairs um so my reaction first was oh no because uh, we've got enough hate against us at the moment and whenever we ask for something we get more hate uh we've seen the last few weeks for trans people uh i personally am actually terrified about the upcoming elections um and how this is going to go down um but i do feel that it is something that you know every other marginalized group does (laughs) does have a ministry so it it is fear (laughs) for us to have one um, so I'd like to see that. I'd like to see um, there to be more uh, trans professionals and like trans health professionals. We have plenty of them. I'd like to see more of them actually making the decisions in trans healthcare because there's too many uh, cisgender health professionals making those decisions without consulting us. Um, and where I'd like to see have my role. Um, Ultimately, I'd like to be able to not have to do the work because um, I'd rather that trans people had a happy, safe place, but that's, that's a far future <laughs> uh, place. Um, there, I, I, would like for, I would like to get back into trans peer support um, again. Um, I miss it. Um, and I recently got a letter from someone that I supported um, and thanking me um, that for the space that I created for them um, and uh, said that they don't know how long it would have taken them to figure out who they were um, and thanked me for using my voice and my power as I did. Um, but yeah, I'd like to support for there to be um, more organisations able to provide that um, and also for it to be um, there to be more trans peer support workers from a range of different cultures. Um, I'm Pakia, I can only provide it from my own lens. Um, 
Additionally, um, another goal of mine is to get uh, support, peer support for peer supporters, so support for people who are doing the work because when I was doing it, I was alone. I, it was very hard um, and to not have to try to fight that alone would be fantastic. Um, also, if I could just quickly um, address that quote. Um, so the quote of, we needed this addressed before we were born, is really talking about the urgency. Um, and there are definitely some trans people who will f- will literally feel like they would have been better off born in um, a body of a different gender to which they were, um, a body of a different sex to which they were. Um, but there are also some of us who, um, some people who, um, like myself, who are grateful for a mixed experience. Um, however, it was once I actually kind of came past just this this knowing that I've always had into like a true understanding of who I was and acceptance that I was trans and non-binary and yes, I want to take testosterone, yes, I want to have top surgery. That's when that urgency came through, and I couldn't bear the idea of having to like hide who I was supposed to be for any more days. Um, yeah. Um, awesome. Um, I suppose the same question. Oh, another question here. Oh, great. Uh, kia ora. This is for question for all of you actually, and I just wanted to know how you prevent burnout um, in systems change when it's happening happening so slowly, um, and what what it is that keeps you going forward really I mean you say diagnosis endometriosis is, is eight years well you know helps you help those people for that length of time um, yeah and a system that's dominated mainly by male professionals um, and how they can just say oh it's normal when they don't understand a concept of what a normal cycle would be so yeah <laughs> I'll go first with that one. I do work with the most amazing male um, professionals, which I'm very lucky to have some male um, and female gynecologists that I work with. And um, what we've started to do is we now have like, so to support each other because, you know, we're all seeing these um, patients and sometimes, again, patients either can't afford to come and see me. And so for for a surgeon, I... I suppose I see firsthand their frustration with like they can't do anything else. They're not going to do surgery. They know what the they they believe that their patient needs to have access to pain therapists and clinical psychologists and physio and just to help them. They're just like this would just be so amazing. And then it's very hard because um, there's not always a financial ability to do that for a lot of people. Um, and so. I feel like their work is, so we do a multidisciplinary team um, meeting. We bring all our pain patients that either if they've already had diagnostic surgery or they're um, considering more the, or the people are coming back, they have to bring them to this um, group and we discuss them. Um, and our vision, my vision is to like be able to hopefully get either insurance companies or people to support, again, a, a person-centered care so you know if you do pay for your health insurance well why can't you see the local 
occupational therapist if you're if that team of professionals think that you this is what you need you should be able to access your healthcare. so um, I think having support from your peers really helps us and also some people just get better like sometimes you come and somebody's they come and see you they've got all these issues you from a from my perspective I go through a lot of like education and um, help them with um, the things that are bothering them and make it really specific to them and they often can just get better or they're managing and it's trying to you're empowering them to manage their own condition so you know it's not a real prescription for because it's just treating people like an individual but that's really um that's what makes you excited because you're like oh my god i can't believe that person got better and all i did was this because you know you're we're, we're so complex in our in our clinical minds about diagnosis and everything that it's really rewarding if people do get find benefit or if you've added something positive to their journey yeah maybe just breaking it down as well um we we provide um we call them endo help appointments where people can call us and we have our coordinator provides practical support and just um, really just breaking it down to you know each day or week at a time and what what things can you achieve and what 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 are achievable and can you know like you were saying some very simple things can make a difference and just really focusing trying to focus on those positives that's definitely at a one-to-one level (laughs) at a systemic level I think there's um we just need to accept that it it, you know it's going to take time and um having um for us as an organization having a um, clear strategic plan with clear um objectives that we're going to achieve each year to do the right thing by our community is really important Um, because we are funded by the community we have that responsibility to deliver on those actions each year so just trying to stay positive and working with good people to try to make a difference. Mm. So it sounds like for, for each of you there, you know, it's the, there's, yeah, there's the big picture and then there's narrow down to focus on each patient and their impact, you know, the impact that you have, but then, and, and each year and, you know, the, so you have the big picture and then go, okay, I'm not getting too overwhelmed, narrow in a little bit <laughs> and, no, and noticing what's right in front of you yes. that you can kind of focus on and, yeah. and control and the small, the small steps, which, you know, you know, do, are making progress, yeah. but they can, they can feel like you're getting nowhere sometimes. And you know, say, like Aaron said on the video there as well, you know, I heard um, around it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it feels like such a cliche. And it can be so frustrating sometimes when you think, but why is it just not all fair? You know, like, I don't know, you know? And well, we do know, but that's way too complex of a question to be getting in now. And we don't need to be living in the, in the past, but. What we yeah. can learn from is other countries. I know, um, mm. you know, there are other women's health strategies in other countries and endometriosis action plans. So at least once the government gives it the <laughs> funding, mm. we can learn from how it's worked well and what hasn't worked so well in other countries mm. and hopefully accelerate the process a little bit. Yeah. yeah. As we've talk, I mean, we've been talking a lot about you know, obviously it can be heavy to talk about inequity and what's unfair and it can be and, and what's negative and what's not working and, and the barriers. But I guess to 
and we've probably started to shift to talk about it a little bit, but I kind of was wondering, you know, what do you think, what do each of you think are our greatest strengths and opportunities actually as we advocate for and provoke system change? So where do you see, yeah, where, where do you see the hope and where do you see the strengths are and, and how do you think we can find the strengths to do this, you know, and provoke change and advocate for more change? I think um, strengths are we are reducing that stigma and the, the you know taboo around some of these subjects. If you look back, you know even five, ten years, we are um, you know we are moving in the right direction. <laughs> it might take you know some time, but even having podcasts like today and um, you know um, creating places mm. to talk and. Um, empower people um, to share their experiences. I think we're doing a much better job as a society in that space than, than we have been. So I think we, we do need to celebrate that, but also acknowledge we still have, you know, a, a way to go with that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, um, Tanya, you also acknowledged, yeah, social media, not ideal, not great, but there, there has been some benefits and I think um, that's been it's been fantastic um, in, in, in the general interwebs, <laughs> the dub dub w's. Um, oh my goodness, cut. <laughs> um, that you know, in the, in the general general internet, you know that that we we have been able to get more people's stories and been able to understand people more on that human level again. Um, and rather than it, it gives us less reason to be scared mm. of of the things that we don't know. Um, and more reason to to connect with it. Um, in in the social media aspect, it's uh, given communities the ability to interact and learn and support each other. Um, I know that um, while I was going through uh, the earlier stages of my transition, my job was peer trans peer support worker, but I was doing that with young people, and I wasn't going to tell like tell them what I was struggling with because that was that wasn't my role to to put that upon them. So for me, I would have really struggled if I didn't have access to the trans masculine groups that I did, where I could be like, "Hey, so this is happening. Sup? Like what?" Um, and yeah, so that's been really beneficial. I think also. Um, the, the high empathy level for those who experience similar issues to us that we have um, and that that we that we are kind of really joining together like for me seeing um, how massively the community responded to the recent uh, turf who came to Aotearoa um, and mostly in a non-violent way um, was was really fantastic and heartwarming. Um, oh, I just have questions for Cooper, so I'm not even thinking about myself. <laughs> I, um, I was going to ask you, what would be, like, how, what, like, could you give us suggested, um, like, pages or, like, social media accounts to follow that you feel are, like, legitimately um, authentic and helpful for supporting the trans community? Or... Is there like there's no is there no other like um, organisations yet or yeah. groups that or yeah groups that there is and I am of course going blank in no, this moment no I think on the on the on the website or on the 
podcast page, we shared some yeah. of the links. Um, so there's some links um, on the on the Plains FM on our on the podcast page. Um, gen- just search Gender Health Justice on Plains FM website, and any links related to each web episode are on there as well. Yeah. So Cooper provided some links there. So definitely check those out. So that'd be a, a good start. Um, and just another thing is that um, I think that socially we're becoming more and more aware of all the different issues that that we need to get better with Mm. and that that is really like that can be really overwhelming thing and I can kind of understand why some people just go no this is too much I can't deal with this Mm. um but I guess being one of the marginalized group I understand why you can't (laughs) um and one of the ways that I have um I've helped assisted myself to make it easier is by kind of like just drip feeding <laughs> myself that information. So I just have found, um, you know, advocates from a range of marginalised groups and just follow them. So I would heavily recommend that people do that. Like, I've got a Muslim lesbian and, like, uh, random Christian black woman um, in the States and, like, just, like, just really random stuff and just follow them because it's these people's experiences and their voices just getting exposed to them starts to get you to understand those things that you just others aren't exposed to. That's a great. That's a great kind of action even to say to people. You know that we're if you if you're wanting to um, understand more about these issues, then yeah, just find some of these people that maybe are not like you and and listen to mm-hmm. their experiences non-judgmentally and and just hear what they have to say and and just sit with that. And be curious about it. And um, so, Ch- Chanel Lau, um, yeah. they just got uh, New Zealand Person of the Year, or maybe Young Person yeah, of the Year, yeah, one or the other. Um, the year, yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, they are a trans activist, um, and um, they get a hard time, a really hard time. But they do amazing, um, amazing mahi. So they're definitely someone to follow, Chanel Lau. Um, any other kind of final questions from audience? Okay, well, before any, any, any kind of closing comments or um, thoughts from you, just around from any of you as our panel around, what, what, would, you invite, um, what would you invite anyone listening to do? Um, to, to, and we've given a few ideas already to do, to ask, um, to try to advocate for change in, in, in these areas. I mean, we've talked about, you know, hearing, seeking opportunities to listen to the stories of others. We've talked about um, using pronouns, you know, using your pronouns when you introduce yourself and because um, that creates a space for someone else to feel safe and that it's okay for them to do so. Um, just asking more questions. What, what else? What else would you ask people to do or invite them to do? There's never like a perfect time, like there's never a perfect mm. time, you know, you don't wait for a project to be completely perfect before you do it, just like, you know, with every action is an equal but opposite action, like force, but action, like a little bit of action can just create another action and then create and create. So I just think yeah. small, steps. small steps, but just trying to not let the conversation and those opportunities um, go amiss because mm. we can all get very just in our head down worry about your own little um, world and it's it's important just to stay open to those conversations and so that we can try and keep um, having some traction and um, going moving forward yeah there's a um, 
story or whatever <laughs> um, about uh, leadership and that um, it's not often like if you're at a concert and there's one person dancing, it's not often that one person dancing that's the leader, but it's the second person that goes up and joins mm. that's the real leader. The first follower. There's a video on YouTube with the dancing guy and yeah, he's up there dancing and it's not him that's the leader. Yeah, someone else gets up and joins him because it's that person that gets everyone to get up and dancing, the second person, not necessarily the first one because everyone's looking at the first one going, I'm not getting up dancing, forget about it. But as soon as the second guy gets up, every people start to follow. So sometimes where's the opportunity to be that ally, that second person, the second dancer? Mm, I love that. Um, so allyship would be <laughs> that, that thing that, yeah, allyship would be the thing that I'd, I'd say is most needed for the trans community. Um, I had a gay male friend of mine message me yesterday. He messages me quite often to say, oh, this person is so transphobic and it's often followed by a screenshot of something followed by with like what his reaction has been. Um, and... Um, but he then said something along the lines of, um, I've noticed that the trans fight is 10 times harder than the, the gay fight, and it's been a real learning curve. Um, and that really hit me hard, just to like hear someone or read someone say that. Um, yeah, and uh, if anyone listens to episode two, you'll hear me talking about the being the trans sore thumb that gets, that gets cut off. Uh, and I actually had to take a break uh, after finishing that sentence and have a glass of water and a bit of a cry uh, before we went back to recording. So I must be able to say that to prevent that from happening, we need the allies, we need people to say the stuff for us as well. So if you notice stuff, we need you to be, a, to, to, even if you're the second person, <laughs> to say, oh yeah, you know, Cooper said this, I'm going to back them and say, yeah, that, please do listen to them, and then get the other people to jump in and say, oh, yeah, fee back to Cooper, but I agree, because uh, otherwise it just looks like me being real annoying. <laughs> and, yeah, so allyship, it's not just sitting back and saying, oh, this is really important, but it's actually like, hey, this is really important for anyone who is listening, I set, set forward. <laughs> I think that kind of brings us to the end of our quarter all this evening. I just, you know, massive mihi and thank you to each of you here for um, just taking the time to be here and and just just sharing openly. And there's probably so much more we could talk about and go into, um, but we have to leave it at that for this evening. But um, yeah, just thank you very much. Um, so. Just, you know, if you haven't listened to the podcast already, um, do. Um, just, it's on Spotify or you can find it on Plains FM's uh, website under Gender Health Justice. And Laura told me that actually we've now surpassed a thousand listens. So um, as of March, a thousand and fifty one listens, which is amazing. I never imagined that that would be the case. And, and that's, yeah, that's fantastic that, you know, we've we've done that and and that this evening's session is going to be edited down as well and we're going to that will be the final episode that I will share with you all as well so yeah um so I started with the karakia I'll just finish with one um kia whakairia te tapu kia wātia ai te ara kia tūruki whakataka ai kia tūruki whakataha 
ai homie huie taikie kia ora thank you Woo! i remember to clap Woo! thank you so much for taking the time to listen to gender health justice this is one of a series of conversations podcasts of the series will be available on the plains fm website spotify and apple if you have any questions or feedback or you have ideas for other topics that we should explore you can find my email address on the Gender Health Justice page on the Plains FM website. Please share with your networks so that we can continue to amplify marginalised voices, provoke system change and help us all be more inclusive and understanding of others' experiences. Thank you, Link Roro and Plains FM for supporting this project. <laughs>